welcome to the latest episode of the Jambase podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein, and Jambase is a partner of Osiris Media, the podcast network for music. Robert Walter returns to the Jambase podcast on this episode. The keyboardist checked in from Roger Waters' tour for a wide-ranging chat in which we talked about his time on the road with the Pink Floyd co-founder, the Grey Boy All-Stars recently released a town called Earth Reissue, and much more. Stand by for that interview. But first, let's hear about this episode's sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Psychedelic Art Exchange. Psychedelic Art Exchange is the premier source to buy, sell, and learn about vintage concert posters. Explore decades worth of exciting collectible concert art from the 1960s to the modern day, featuring the Grateful Dead, Fish, and many more of your favorite bands and artists. Be on the lookout for Jambase's four-part series detailing the history of concert posters, and head over to concertpostergallery.com to explore their expanding online store or to bid on vintage rarities in one of their twice-monthly auctions. Happy collecting! This episode is sponsored by SoFar Sounds. SoFar Sounds is a global community of music lovers creating space where music matters. SoFar invites guests to discover new artists, places, and people, whether at home or abroad, in over 400 cities around the world. Now integrated with Jambase's concert listings, SoFar shows transform everyday spaces, from living rooms and rooftops to boutiques and museums into captivating venues for secret live shows, creating inclusive experiences that bring people closer together. Each SoFar features different musical styles, and you won't know who's performing until they take the stage. Once they do, you just might fall in love. Previous SoFar performances have featured Ben Gibbard, Lucius, Leon Bridges, Beirut, Billie Eilish, Moses Sumney, Soccer Mommy, and many other talented musicians from around the globe, including previous Jambase podcast guests, Sylvanesso, Krungman, Anderson East, and Tank and the Bangas. SoFar keeps the location secret until the day before the show. The SoFar community creates an inclusive space where music matters so that you can get lost in the performance. Locations of SoFar experiences have taken place in such unexpected spots as under an airplane in the Aeronautical Museum in Spain, at a climbing gym in Houston, between the barrels in a distillery in Boulder, Colorado, as well as in New York City at a volleyball court, in the engine room at the Kellam Island Museum in Sheffield, England, and in libraries, apartments, amusement parks, and countless other cool spots around the world. To learn more about SoFar Sounds, visit SoFarSounds.com or search Champions to find a SoFar Sounds event happening near you. There was sad news on Tuesday when Loretta Lynn's family confirmed the country legend's death at age 90. The coal miner's daughter singer died peacefully in her sleep. Born in rural Kentucky, she released I'm a Honky Tonk Girl, her first hit and debut in 1960. Lynn signed with Decca and released more than 40 records for the label over a 30-year span. She became part of the Nashville country scene in the 60s and started releasing a string of chart-topping hit singles that included Coal Miner's Daughter, Fist City, Don't Come Home A-Drinkin', and You Ain't Woman Enough to Take My Man. Other notable standouts from Lynn's career include the provocative songs The Pill, Rated X, and One's On The Way. In total, Loretta put out 16 songs that topped the country charts. Lynn also released several successful duets in collaboration with Conway Twitty in the early 1970s. Additionally, Loretta received acclaim for her 1977 album, I Remember Patsy, which was a tribute to her friend, fellow country singer Patsy Cline, who died in 1963. In 1976, Lynn published her well-received autobiography, Coal Miner's Daughter. 
Four years later, the book was the basis for the feature film of the same name. Loretta received many well-deserved accolades as one of the most awarded musicians of all time. There will not, never be another like her. Rest easy, Loretta Lynn. This weekend, I'm headed up to Boston for As Summer Into Autumn Slips. The two-day event Jambase is presenting will take place at Soundcheck Studios in Pembroke, Massachusetts, this Friday, October 7th, and Saturday, October 8th. Come hang with me and all of Team Jambase to check out sets from Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey, the Marco Benevento Trio, Club Delph, William Tyler, and Wolf featuring Scott Metzger. Head to summerintoautumnslips.com for more details and to buy tickets. Now, let's get to my interview with Robert Walter. I caught up with Robert via video chat from his home in Los Angeles, where he was taking advantage of an off day from Roger Waters' This Is Not A Drill Tour. Walter recalled how he was asked to join Roger's band. Keyboardist has been a big Pink Floyd fan since he was a kid and discussed the incredible experience of sharing the stage with Roger. Keyboardist, who previously discussed musical mentors in a 2018 episode of the Jam Bass Podcast, talked about how the tour has been a great return to the road for him after all the downtime of the pandemic. Robert spoke about the grand production of Roger Waters' tour, playing huge arenas for the first time, trying to create a perfect performance each night, and all the rehearsal that went into the track. Walter also talked about how exacting Roger Waters is as a boss and why Robert appreciates the attention to detail. Another topic we hit upon was Better Feathers, a series of recordings Walter wrote and recorded during the dog days of the pandemic. Robert explained how he needed the creative outlet while stuck at home and created and recruited a number of his musical friends to collaborate remotely on the 12 tracks. Better Feathers was released last year as a series of digital 45s. The keyboardist discussed how he picked the collaborators and why he chose to put out the songs as digital singles. Robert and I went on to discuss his time in the Grey Boy All-Stars. The band will kick off a celebration of their 30th anniversary with their upcoming New Year's run in their hometown of San Diego. Greyboy All-Stars recently reissued their long-out-of-print 1997 album, A Town Called Earth, on both vinyl and digital formats for the first time. Walter recalled how the group truly found their sound between releasing their debut album, 1995's West Coast Boogaloo, and entering the studio to record A Town Called Earth. They figured out what they wanted to be and underwent a big evolution in the time leading up to their sophomore LP. Robert spoke about his favorite track on the album, the role he played in the reissue, and how much the Grey Boy All-Stars mean to him personally. Hear a taste of Happy Friends from Grey Boy All-Stars A Town Called Earth as a lead-in to my interview with Robert Walter.
excited to welcome back Robert Walter to the Jam Base podcast. How are you doing, Robert? Real good. Glad to be here. Where do we find you on, on this uh, lovely video chat? Where, where, where am I calling into? I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. Um, I'm still on tour, but um, I had a day off, so I stopped by my house to do laundry. I would imagine it's been quite some time since you've last been home. Yeah, I left. I guess I left at the beginning of June, and I've been out ever since. So that, that is, that months, is, I guess. You know, go, going from one extreme to the other. You know, I'm, I I would imagine with the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, that was the craziest thing. Is I I didn't leave my house for a couple of years, and then, um, then the last year or so has been just real crazy, real full of stuff. It's it's real nice to to be able to perform for people and do some traveling and stuff. I, I can imagine. Um, can we talk about how you learned of, of the gig? How, how were you first asked to play in, in Roger's band? Oh, um, so yeah, I just got a call from my friend Gus who plays with Roger and Gus I got him. Go ahead. Sorry. Gus from the actual band, Gus Seifert. Yeah. Gus Seifert. Yeah. Seifert. Okay. Who, so I had known for years from various things in Los Angeles and we had played together with, uh, with Mike Andrews, um, Elgin Park from Grey Boy All-Stars. We had been in a lot of sessions of his, Gus and I, and, um, I knew a couple other people in the band, but, uh, I got a message from Gus and I was, I was joking that may, what if this was <laughs> for the Roger Waters gig, but, um, but I just thought he was calling to say hi or ask me something. And then um, he said, would, would you like to do this, be in this band? So, so that's how it happened. Um, pretty amazing experience. I'm, I was a big fan from when I was a kid and stuff. So, yeah. And I, 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 I believe I, I saw The Wall was the, your, your entree into the world of Pink Floyd. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the first records I ever bought, like went out and got with my own money because I was, um, you know, another brick in the wall was on the radio and all that. I had kind of known about Pink Floyd, but I didn't really dive into it until then. But that was when I was, you know, 12. So. And, and you had heard that, that Bo was going to be on the road with, with my morning jacket. So, so knew that it was a possibility. That's, that's why. I didn't, I didn't know that until they called me, actually. I, I figured he was still doing it, but but that's how it all worked out. So. Well, did you give, you know, as we talked about, you went from one extreme to the other, you were, you were homebound for a long time. Was there anything in your mind that saying don't do it or was it always a go? Oh, just to get, get out on, and on the road. I, I, I was ready to go, you know, by after all that time at home, I was like kind of, um, I kind of decided like I want to play as much as possible because I had missed it so much. I didn't realize it was, it was actually a really nice break at first when we, not that I'm, I was welcoming, welcoming the sure. quarantine or anything, but there's something like that got me kind of off the endless hamster wheel of, Oh, what's the next gig and learn music for this and sort of running around. It, it gave me a pause to sort of reflect on what, I wanted to spend my time doing, but I really did miss performing and traveling. I, I've spent most of my life, adult life doing that. And, um, it's kind of where I'm happiest, you know, that that's excellent. And 
I would imagine a tour like this is not how you normally do things with yeah. Playboy All-Stars <laughs> and your other bands. It's much more luxurious in ways. And it's also just, um, shows are so big and there's so many people involved. I'm just a part of a, a much larger machine. So, um, it's really cool to see some production on that level. I, you know, if anything, my, most of my things I've done with Greyborn in particular have been sort of the opposite of that. And the idea is there's, it's the band with as minimal, um, production as possible. You know, sure. we always say like, like the soloists, but nothing fancy. Don't black it out. Keep it simple. Um, and sound wise, it's the same thing. Like, you know, we use kind of standard instruments and it's, it's very like about sort of that minimalism. And this is the opposite where everything's crazy and, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of theater to it. So. And I would say that minimalist approach goes back to your roots as, as a fan of punk. Yep. That, yeah, punk rock. And also from like a jazz concept where it's the band on stage playing and it's more about the interaction of the players than putting on a show, but that's, it's, they're just different. I, I kind of love both approaches. Um, you know, one idea is that you want a unique experience, a unique event to happen at the show. So you're playing kind of without any planning and you let the thing happen. That requires that the thing be simpler and more, um, just so that any, it can adapt to whatever happens. And then this show is it, it more like a, a piece of theater. It's more like doing a Broadway show or something where there's a lot of planning, everything's figured out and it's all about presenting some ideas in a, in a sort of beautiful way. Oh, well, and part of that is that you play pretty much the same songs every night, but are there nuances that are different each night? Oh yeah. There's a lot of that. I mean, but, but it is the same songs and basically the same, same way, but you know, people kind of throw a little thing on it. You have to do things to keep it, um, keep it fresh and keep your mind on it. And also they're constantly refining. So we actually do rehearse a lot, even though we're kind of doing the same music. There's every day, there's a lot of notes. Roger will have a lot of notes about take this slower. You're playing too much here. Let's get this part quiet. Like little nuances that it gets more and more dialed in. So it's pretty pretty inspiring to watch like how what level of sort of detail you can get and um it's fun to play that way you know it's the opposite of what i've done most of my life which is like you barely know the songs and you sort of like are thinking on your feet all the time this way it's it's much more about like you know trying to create a perfect performance um uh, people who are in plays tell me the same thing you have to even though it's the same words you have to kind of say them different ways slightly to keep the other actor engaged and to sure. make it feel authentic and like it's happening. So kind of about that. How much rehearsal went into this tour at the beginning? I know you're talking about that. It's been changed over time and you've done rehearsals on the road, but before you hit the road, I think we rehearsed for about a month altogether. And then I had been working on stuff at home before that, but it's not just music. There's also some like, you know it's not choreography like dance choreography but like how's the stage going to work some of its technical sort of rehearsal sure um because there's so much going on so. where did that take place 
We did it um, at a sort of a rehearsal space. You know? Sure. Yeah. Now, Roger Waters has a um, reputation um, as, as being a, uh, a taskmaster of sorts. <laughs> Have you got on well with him? I, I get along with him well, yes. I would, I would agree that he is very exacting and wants the thing. You know, he's, he's pretty serious about it and he works hard. It's not, um, it's not, you know, everything's cool all the time. It's definitely like strict and, ever, you know, things run on time. It's really a pleasure for me <laughs> after being in so many um, bands with maybe less than prompt people. Sure. <laughs> it's all part of, a, part of rock and roll. But yeah, this is much more like it's all business. It's about the music, trying to make it constantly better. And he hears everything. So he'll be like, that's wrong, you know, whatever. So, you know, it doesn't, doesn't ruffle my feathers. I kind of like that anyway. I'm a little bit like that myself. Do you have much interaction with him off stage? Yeah. We talk about the music a lot, you know, but not um, politics. I take it. <laughs> I feel like it's out. Of, it's out of my arena, you know, uh, Sure, it's not, it's not my, my, it's not either my interest or my forte. So. I can appreciate that. <laughs> um, we talked about earlier the the luxurious way of of touring. Um, it, it seems to me, even looking at the schedule, there aren't many back to backs. It's nicely spaced out. And um, I, do, how do you get from gig to gig? Is there a lot of flying or buses? Mostly flying, you know from from place to place and then we sort of hub out of a city so it's actually nice to have a lot of days off and actually get to see some of these cities where on like my normal sort of van or bus to where you you see the venue and the area around the venue and then you get in the bus and you go to the next place and there's not that much time to um to spend so we have you know there's a lot of days built off just for everyone to rest and for them to build the, the show every night so um so it's been a cool way to explore some things it's, you know, we're still sort of in the end of COVID time. So I don't get to do quite as much as I normally would have in the old days of traveling. But it's, you know, I've been exploring the cities and stuff. It's fun. Musically, what are some of your favorite moments of the show to play? Um, I always love uh, the song Sheep because it's it sort of reminds me of my when I was a kid. And that's sort of epic, proggy. <laughs> number you know there's a lot of good organ moments it's like a big it's a big set piece too with like you know it's it's very dramatic so i like that kind of channels my so what i what i dreamed it would be like to do this kind of a show Absolutely. And 
I, I, I love his approach to some of the dark side of, of the moon stuff. Um, That's a great thing to play too. I mean, I, I kind of like the whole set. There's, there's, he's got a lot going on lyrically that I can relate to. And um, that music works in a big, in a big venue. It's all dramatic and sort of, you know, it's almost like a operatic kind of approach to music. You know, every move is big and, you know, means a lot and tr- it translates across the room, I think. Speaking of big arenas, I mean, you've played some some famous spots with him over the past few months. Um, was it your first time on stage at Madison Square Garden? Yep. 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 How was that experience? It was cool. It was kind of everything I, I thought it would be. It does have a different sort of energy than even the other big venues on this, um, on this trip, but I had been there a lot. Um, but I had never been on the stage. So yeah, it was, it was really fun. It felt special, you know, are there any other venues that stand out, um, that, that you've been to over the past few months? You know, the one thing about these, like these arenas, they're, they are a little more anonymous than maybe, clubs and theaters would be where you really get a flavor of everyone of them looks real different there are you know they're all a big space like this um the crowds have varied you know depending on where you are i mean in denver kind of blew my mind because it was the the crowd was so multi-generational and so enthusiastic people were on their feet the whole time um there have been more a lot more young people than i thought because you know Roger's sort of a legacy artist who, you know, the biggest records were probably in the seventies. And, and so a lot of, you would think the fans are older, but there's a lot of kids and there's a lot of kids of those people and even like little kids coming to the things. But, um, Denver was, was a rocker. It you know, it just felt like a crazy energy. Um, Emma, she was great. Um, San Francisco was great, of course. And now and you did kind of see that you did see the little slightly more high, um, hippie crowd in san francisco which is funny but it kind of fulfilled all the all the stereotypes in some way and now you're approaching the end of the first leg you've got a bunch of time off uh before europe um and um are are you gonna take it easy for the first couple of weeks after you get back from such a intense experience i mean i'll probably do normal like get my house back together and sort of resume normal life. But I am excited about getting back into doing some gray boy, all stars. And, um, you know, I do a lot of film work with the guitar player from that band with Mike, Mike Andrews and Elgin park. So, um, get back in the studio for that. I'm working on some music of my own. So I'm, I kind of going to hit the ground running and keep working, you know, and one of the members of the band, so one of my favorite musicians, Jonathan Wilson. Um, oh, yeah. How has it been playing with him? It's great. I only knew him peripherally before, and we, we've gotten to be great friends, and he's an inspiring guy to be around. Excellent. And, and uh, last question on, on the, the Roger Waters side. Um, you take part in a parade uh, during the reprise of the bar at the, the end of the night. Um, is that a melodica that you're playing? Yeah, it's a melodica. Okay. I've, I've recorded with a melodica a few times. I love Augustus Pablo, you know, that started sure. records with melodica. And um, there's this, there's an old guy on an Atlantic 
Fillmore Jr. was his name, and he did this sort of psychedelic soul jazz uh, melodica with echoplex on it and stuff. <laughs> Amazing stuff. So anyway, I've always liked the instrument, and I've, I've used them on a couple of my albums. But um, but they we I need something portable. I don't play accordion, and um, it seemed like a cool solution. So I got a real nice one. You know, this one's like sort of pro model melodica. Very cool. Very cool. Well, before you hit the road with with Roger, um, it, it was the pandemic and you came up with the idea to record a series of what you released initially as digital 45s in, in better feathers. Um, what was the initial idea in, in starting that project? It was just to have something to do during all that time it was so so um you know i was kind of bored and and wanted some kind of outlet so i thought well maybe i'll make an album i always liked sort of uh low fidelity home recordings and electronic music and i had always been making demos that's how i always wrote songs to to bring into bands is i'd make little home sort of home demo recordings and you know put drum play all the instruments on them so um we were, you know, there wasn't going to be gigs or even in studio things with people for so long. So I just thought like, well, maybe I'll start trying to finish some of these songs. And instead of, instead of making a rough sketch for people to play, let me see if I can actually kind of complete the recordings. Um, and it just gave me something to keep my mind occupied. It was, it was a fun project. And then all my friends had kind of been doing the same thing. So everyone set up home studio. So it was a cool way to be like, you know hey stanton could you play drums on a few of these so because he was looking for things to do too so it was a way to sort of like connect with each other without being in the same room and how much with these remote contributions how much direction did you give them not much (laughs) i would just kind of like throw the thing at him and say do a few different takes and then i would take things and sometimes edit together performance so um with Stanton, there was a few things where I was like, do one with brushes, do one a little harder, do one that's real crazy, play all all the fills. And then, you know, so I had like sort of a simple version, one with a lot of stuff, and I sort of just chose what would be right for each piece. But um, but I tried to let people be creative. I mean, that's part of, to me, collaborating with people. It's, I don't want someone to play what I would imagine even that they play. I kind of want to hear their voice and opinion in it. And that's what is the beauty of working with people to me. And how did you pick the people that, that you worked with? I I mean, I know some of them were old friends like Mike Gordon and frequent collaborators like Stanton, but for, for instance, um, with, with Craig from formerly from Turquoise, how how did he come into the picture on that project? Craig, we had played a gig. It was like a, it was like a fish after party thing in Denver that live for live music had put on. Um, and we were, George Porter was on it. Um, there was a bunch of people on the gig and we all got along, but Craig and I were the ones talking a lot about the set list and we were kind of both a nerd. I always end up that guy in the band, usually <laughs> making the set list and, you know, sort of scheduling things and sending, sending music around. I'm kind of like, you know, usually took their role he seemed like the same kind of person so we got along really well during that and then 
after that, we just started texting each other music and being like, oh, did you check this out? Oh, this is, you know, I, I just discovered this record or whatever. So we just had a lot of stuff in common. And I thought, oh, well, it's, he's at home and he has a home recording thing and maybe we'll actually get to work together that way. Because we haven't played together live much, but we always talk about it. And this is just a cool way to, to do it. And he was interested in a lot of the music that I was too, which is like a kind of... I was kind of into like late seventies, early eighties sort of art dance music, like all this no wave things and Grace Jones, sort of like weird, not like mainstream disco records, but things that came out of that scene and were a little more esoteric. Um, and we had been talking about a lot of that music. So that was an influence for this step. And he, he seemed like a perfect fit. As I said, you, you put it out as digital 45s. Uh, what what was the, the thinking in, in that? I thought like rather than drop a whole thing where you, you sort of consume it as an album, I, I always loved 45s and I like the idea of that. And it, I feel like kind of when you're listening to music streaming, you're kind of jumping around like that anyway. And I thought it would be cool to do it like as a, a side, B side that were related in some way. So it gives you two things to think about, but not a whole, a whole, um, you know, hour of music at once. Um, and it was a way just to sort of like, you know, point a light on each one and say, pay attention to this and this. And you can sort of, you know, it's just a different way to consume the music that I can relate to because I love collecting records and there's something about listening to 45s that's different. You work with um, one of my favorite people, in the industry, um, Kevin Calabro from from uh, Royal Potato Family. Um, wh- what role did he play in that decision? Did you come to him saying, this is how I want to do it? Or is that something you worked out with him? I don't remember what the, I don't remember if that was my idea first or his idea first. But we did talk about that. Uh, I told him about the project. I said, I just, I've been making these recordings at home. Um, and getting friends to play on him. Would you, would you want to put this out? And so w- he was involved kind of early on before it was done for sure. Um, it wasn't like I made the thing and was like, this is my release. Yeah. We, we sort of talked about like, Oh, what's a fun way to do this. Um, there, there weren't really any obvious rules about how to deal with that at that point. It was, it's obvious like a release that we weren't going to tour on because no one was touring. And, you know, so it was just, um, you know, kind of, you, you kind of were inventing ways to how, how you were going to release the music. So it was, it was fun. And, and also there wasn't any idea that this was going to be successful or whatever. I, I just thought it was a fun thing to do. And, you know, it's sort of like, I, I'm bored. And I need to do this. And people maybe want something to listen to, yeah. so, you know. Certainly appreciated it from that uh, point of you it didn't um, feel like career driven in any way because at that point no one was even thinking about that you're just like yeah. 
I just got to make music. It was cool. Kind of, we kind of brought it back to like the old days of when I was a kid, just making music for its own sake. And as we had discussed, one of the contributors was, was Mike Gordon. It's now been a number of years since your amazing five piece has played together. Have you kept in touch with, with Mike throughout that whole period? Oh yeah. Yeah. We talk, um, we kind of have a regular, um, a call that we do. And then, um, um, he was, he made an album sort of during all that time too, where we were sending tracks back and forth and doing stuff like that. So, Excellent. so we, we continue to work. Yep. Can't wait to hear that. And I hope that five piece gets back on the road at some point. It's been too long. Um, getting to Grey Boy and, um, a town called Fantastic reissue of A Town Called Earth, um, which, which came out, um, you know, it, it seems the band went through a huge evolution between West Coast Boogaloo and A, a Town Called Earth. I mean, it, it, it was a bunch of years and, and you kept pretty busy with the band during those years. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so between those albums, there was, I guess there was two years. And, but that was the, um, West Coast Boogaloo was made when we were just barely a band. Like we had just kind of started, it was, we had this, what if we did an instrumental record? And we had some music we were listening to at the time that was like that, but it wasn't, there, we didn't, we, we didn't have any hours under our belt, really. We just like had a great chemistry and we were like, okay, let's go do it. And we made the record in a day and it's half covers and really dead people love that. It's got a real innocence to it. But but by the time we got to Town Called Earth, we had been on the road for two years playing like almost every night. That band used to go really hard and play like, you know, over 200 dates a year. When we weren't on the road, we were playing multiple weekly things at home. So we, and we rehearsed all the time. It was like we really had a, that was like sort of the highest enthusiasm for the group that there ever was. So, and we were, we started to write songs and we started to like figure out what we wanted to be and start, instead of emulating sort of our heroes, we started decide, deciding what is our voice within this genre. So, so that album's a hundred percent originals and it's kind of more varied stylistically too. Cause we, instead of starting with a template of like, you know, Grant Green, Ruben Wilson, like these certain soul jazz records that started to include things that were more esoteric, like Gabor Zabo and Brazilian music and, you know, sort of more psychedelic jazz and out things and Ramsey Lewis and all these different influences. So um, the palette became a lot wider. You know, I feel like I learned to play in those two years too. <laughs> you know, the stuff on West Coast Boogaloo, I sound like a little, a little baby to me, but um, after a couple of years on the road improvising every night, I, I started to develop a voice. And a number of, of uh, those shows were with Fred, Fred Wesley, who yep. wrote the, um, the, it's a, the, the liners. Yep. Yeah. And is yeah, it the same was, ones that he wrote originally that are, are used on the reissue? Yep. Yeah. That's cool. the, that's what he, he wrote at the time. I mean, he was a great, he was the first of that, the, the guys from the older generation, that you know like our heroes that i i'd played with since then i've gotten to play with a lot of those people and 
it's sort of invaluable learning the music firsthand. Rather, you can, you know, I've listened to all those records a million times and you learn every note, you copy it, all this stuff, but actually being around those guys and watching them play and the way they approach the music and you sort of absorb a different thing from it. Um, it's great. Melvin Sparks, we had met um, in between those two albums too and it taught us a lot about um, just rhythm and how to play and all that stuff. And I had made my record with... Gary Bartz, I believe, by then. Um, I can't remember if that's before or after, actually. But it's around that time. But anyway, so we got to meet a couple people from the original generation. And Fred was a great one because he traveled with us and told us stories about the road. And, you know, James Brown. Yeah, and sort of philosophical advice. Like he, he was always like, don't let, he said, don't let what anybody says about you, good or bad, affect you too much. So if everyone tells you you're amazing, take that with a grain of salt. And if everyone tells you you're terrible, but you know it's good, stick to your guns. So, and I've kind of always remembered that throughout. So if, yeah, if you get discouraged or if you feel like you're being fluffed too much, you kind of know if you're full of shit or <laughs> yeah. if it's really good, you know? And um, it never feels good, even if you're getting a lot of accolades, if you know that you're not really doing a great job. Were you familiar enough with the album after all these years that when this project came up, you didn't need to listen back or was there listening that you did when it came time to prep the reissue? Oh, um, I was, I had been listening to it and we had been playing a fair amount of it over the years. Um, oh, that's right. You did a, the, the live stream gig too. Where yeah. You, yeah, we were doing that. We had already started started to prep the reissue by that time, but but that's you know the thing we hadn't played was the title track, which is sort of a big psychedelic odyssey with multiple parts and like kind of crazy with real free. So, um, but we did play that for the live stream, um, and then, um, but I I was pleasantly surprised. I hadn't really sat down to listen to the whole album in a long time. I think it's one of the best recorded albums we've made, even to this day. There's something just about it. It was like in a nice room, not over compressed. It was very sort of naturalistic, captured the the interaction of the band really well. A nice and legendary room. It was at yep. at at Wally uh, Hyder's and Yep. Yep. Yeah, Wally Hyder. Um I just went in there again to record an album with um, Eddie Roberts and Zach and Chris from Grey Wilders. We did an album under the name Rare Sounds. It's not out yet, but um, but we just recorded there like a year ago. So again, um, but yeah, it was like where the Herbie Hancock had made Headhunters and Thrust, and so I, you know, I felt cool being in there. Um, and we set up all of our gear for the first time, like um, West Coast Boogaloo. We just kind of used whatever was in there, but this time we brought an organ clavinet and a piano and a Rhodes and a Wurlitzer and synthesizers. It's like pretty fun. What are some of your favorite songs from um, A Town Called Earth? I mean, you know, I love Quantico, which is Carl's song, but I sort of am featured on it. It's, it's kind of a tribute to Ramsey Lewis trios stuff. Chris plays acoustic bass on it. Um, and it's fake live. We sort of re-overdubbed us as the audience, but it's supposed to sound like um, huh. 
um, you know, the in crowd, like live at the Bohemian Caverns, or, you know, similarly, um, Mercy, Mercy, Mercy by Cannibal Ireland was not actually live. It was fake live. <laughs> Same thing. That was sort of our tribute to that. The funny thing about that song is we had never played the song before we recorded it. So Carl kind of talked down the head. He said, oh, it goes to this chord and this chord and here's the melody. And then we said, okay, let's try it. And that is the take that's on the album. The first time we, we never played all the way through what? the song before that. So that's got, it, it really does have that feeling of discovery and liveness because it's, it wasn't the first time we ever played it. Did you play a big role in the the reissue? I approved um, ma masters and test pressings, and yeah, we did. I guess everybody sort of chimed in and talked about like, like we that band's pretty collaborative and democratic, you know. Which to, on the downside, sometimes it takes forever to make a decision, yeah. <laughs> but but everyone's pretty highly involved and cares a lot about that band. You know, there's not a real like clear leader. We sort of all get, get in there. And coming up, you have a three night hometown New Year's run in, in San Diego. And uh, how long has it been since you guys have performed with DJ Greyboy? I'm trying to think like every once in a while he would come and play intermission it's probably only been like four or five years since we've done something like that. I can't remember. It happens here and here and here and there, but um, it's, there's something about um, in San Diego with him and at the Casbah, which is, I, I had been playing the Casbah since I was in my teens. I used to have to wait outside the club and come in just for my set because <laughs> I wasn't old enough to be in the bar. Um, and spent many nights standing around at the door, you know, sort of like listening to the other bands. It used to be a much smaller room. And Casbah was the place where every sort of up and coming alternative or punk act would come play San Diego because it was a small club, but they, they were booking everybody. So, you know, Nirvana played there the first time they came around in San Diego. And I mean, anybody you can think of, really. So um, it's a it's a legendary spot and means a lot to me. It's not just a hometown. It's sort of like that club is, yeah. is, um, is our spot. You know? And it's cool that it's going to start a celebration of your 30th anniversary. Yep. Is that tough to believe that it's been 30 years? <laughs> yeah, it really. It's weird. Like the first five years seem long and then everything since then seems like it's flown by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? But um, But yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, there's nothing... You know, we all, of course, have gone to do a lot of other things. And and as we grow older, all of us kind of think, like, of all the things, that's kind of the band. It's, there's something magical about it. There's something that you can't recreate by getting sort of, you know, you could hire better players and you can, you know, whatever. 
they're not going to be as good together. There's something about that group. And a lot of people have, that's what, what makes good bands. It's not a just, it's not just like get the best person on each instrument and, and all of that. It's more about like, why do these people, why can you relate to them? And then also when you add all those years of history, you start having this other thing, you know, got shared experience. So. And it's crazy chemistry, and it's and the the lineup hasn't changed. Which I mean, how many bands can yep. say that in thirty years? Yeah, yeah, it really has a powerful. Um, yeah, there's something magical. Like there's something that is way beyond the sum of its parts. And I've tried to recreate that with different things, and I've had great experiences with a lot of people. But that seems like the band. That's the one we all want to do when we when we're old men. <laughs> if we're not already. And do you think the 30th anniversary will include um, more more shows and, and new music? Yeah, everyone's into doing it as much as they can. And we're talking about um, we'll make a new new record of some kind. So. Awesome. And before I let you go, I just have one more um, Roger Waters question. And mm-hmm. that is... When you first started rehearsals and the initial draft that you got of the set list, how much did it change from then to the end of rehearsals and what you actually brought on stage opening night? Do you mean just in terms of songs or? Both um, in terms of songs and and placement. I feel like the songs were almost, the, the, the set list was, almost the same we might have we might have added a couple of things and i actually got a couple of swap outs like right before rehearsal started because we had i started hearing the sort of plans and rehearsing for it at my my own before so there was a couple swap arounds but mostly it's been the same the whole time and it's been like more about tweaks to arrangements and like um things like that like who's going to play what parts sort of like fine-tuning sort of that part of it. But the this concept of the show has been pretty consistent. And it's because it's Roger's idea and vision, you know. Absolutely. Well, there's um, still a few more chances to see the uh, the, the, the tour. Um, and uh, for those in Europe, you'll get a chance to see it in 2023. Great by All-Stars. Start, start celebrating 30th anniversary um, at the Casbah um, starting December 29th and running through New Year's. Um, Robert, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me.
end of this episode of the Jam Bass Podcast. Thanks to Robert Walter for taking the time to chat. Be sure to pick up Great by All-Stars' excellent A Town Called Earth reissue. Catch Robert on the road with Roger Waters and Greyboy All-Stars. Can't wait to see what's in store for the band's 30th anniversary next year. Also, much love to Jake Alexander for producing this episode. Our theme music is provided by Clangin' and Bangin'. If you're a new jam-based podcast listener and haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Thanks for listening and go see live music. <laughs>